0: My wife and I like to read um, at night together. It's a nice alternative to watching movies or shows on TV, and we learn a lot from people's lives. We especially like to read historical biographies, and over the last couple of years, we've actually read two books on Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. Uh, one was The Endurance about Shackleton, and the other one was Ice Masters about Bartlett, the captain who had a group of men in the Canadian North Pole. In July of 1913, Bartlett set out, actually Stephenson, the expedition, the man who led the expedition set out from Alaska on the Carlick. And shortly after leaving, the the ship got trapped in ice. Not wanting to wait, Stephenson, who was the leader of this expedition, decided to go for a hunting party, although all men knew that he was abandoning his crew. And so he took a group of men with him and left, leaving the ship in charge with the captain, Captain Robert Bartlett. The world was captured by their story during this time because everyone thought that they were lost. And as the ship continued to get crushed by the the closing ice it eventually came to a point where the ship sunk and the men had to g- abandon the ship and live on the surface of the ice. Now, these ice flows are constantly moving, so it was a very unsettling experience, to say the least. And over the course of time, they knew that their only survival was to track across the ice and get to this island called Wrangell Island just off the coast of Russia. So under Bartlett's leadership, all who would follow him made the foot uh, trek across the ice and eventually got to the island where eventually those men were rescued nearly a year later. Only 14 men survived. Roughly a year after they set out, in 1914, the same year that the men from the Carlic were rescued, Ernest Shackleton, in the South Pole, set out for an expedition to go across the Antarctic. He took with him 22 men, and and he, like the Carlic and his ship, the Endurance, got stuck in the ice as well. And eventually that ice closed in on that ship and sunk that ship and the men had to abandon ship and they took with them some lifeboats that they had. Now on the Karlick, they had no lifeboats, they had some sleds and some sled dogs that they could move across the ice with. But on the Endurance, Shackleton and his men only had three boats which they had to push across the ice and try to get to open water in order to survive. After an amazing journey to this uh, open water, they're able to get to an island where Shackleton took all of his men and he put them onto the island, and then he took a small group of men and went to another island to track across a glacier mountain to get help at a whaling station on the other side. The world had left them up for dead, and yet after two years, they discovered that all 22 men were still alive and waiting rescue. Now, both of these expeditions were incredibly challenging and took place in the exact kind of extreme weather and conditions. Conditions such as these are quite revealing when it comes to strengths and weaknesses. Strengths tend to become stronger, and perseverance ultimately the outcome, but weaknesses, on the other hand, tend to multiply. Apathy and despair sets in, and passivity often leads to quitting. And when that happens, tempers flare, presenting additional challenges. Some manage others submarine and, and quit. Some plan and maximize, others minimize what they have to do in order just to wait the whole thing out. Now, the greatest contrast between these two stories is really ultimately in their leaders. One led and protected while the other was consumed with himself and eventually abandoned his crew. The other contrast is found in the reasons why these men embarked upon the journey in the first place. The men in the Karlik were inexperienced, and few of the men even trusted Stephenson, the expedition leader, even before they began. His reputation of poor leadership and foolish decisions preceded him, and yet they disregarded the man. Even before the ship sailed, supplies and resources were said to be at the next port, which they never, they never reached. And in the end, they were in it for the wrong reasons, and it cost them. The men of the endurance were experienced, and they were trained, and they trusted The leader. They trusted Shackleton. They read his experience and saw that he was trustworthy. Shackleton was committed to the security and health and the unity of his crew. And even though they suffered equally and even longer than the men on the carlick, they all survived. Now we may not be challenged at sea like these men. But Paul describes the reality of a huge gale force of wind raging against the gospel and the wisdom of of, of our God in this world. He wrote in Ephesians chapter four verse 14, that we are under the threat of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The social media and the Internet is full of competing agendas. It's promoting alternative purposes of how we should live and alternative destinations for life. It can erode our confidence and arouse suspicion in, in the God we believe in as we suffer but it's not only out there that we can feel the pressure it's also in the church as well Paul warned in Colossians that the Colossians should be aware of of others passing judgment upon you because of food or drink or certain festivals or certain regulations or promoting self-made religion Colossians 2 verses 16 and following talk about that Besides false teaching, there are also just the challenges presented by varying levels of spiritual maturity that we have within the church. Some have deep faith and conviction and others are new, just coming to the faith. They're still trying to figure out what does it mean to be pleasing to the Lord and what is not. And as is such, it's not uncommon for us to find division and judgment over certain issues within the church, hindering the experience of God's intended gospel joy in our midst. So how do we navigate All these challenges without getting lost at sea. How do we navigate these challenges without killing each other or just waiting it out? How do we endure in hope and bless others as we make this journey? We need to follow the right leader. We need to not forget who he is or what he has said when we're uncertain. We need to trust him. He's prepared us for this journey and has equipped us with what we need to make it safely home. Jesus knew our sanctification and growth toward genuine love would take time. We will learn how to love as we have been loved, and we will learn to walk as his followers. His redemptive work on the cross secures not only our salvation from sin and judgment, also but also our sanctification, the recreation or the restoration, if you will, of his original design in us, the new birth, as Jesus calls it in John 3. Paul explained in, in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, that when the church loves and lives like Christ, the church puts on display to a watching world that the gospel has done its job. He puts on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that the wisdom of God has reversed the curse of self-love, fueled by the doubting of God. But it doesn't happen instantly but rather through the process of God's transforming our mind and creating within us the mindset of Christ. This morning we're going to look at some of the most practical examples of what it looks like in Romans uh, to walk with Christ. And we'll discover that this God of encouragement and hope, as Tom read earlier, has given us a sufficient source of wisdom in his word to work out these messes that we find ourselves in, as well as navigate the storms of life. So if you will, open with me to Romans chapter 15. Now in this letter, uh, Paul is writing from Corinth. We've been in Corinth lately with Pastor Dan. And as he's writing from Corinth, he's also warning the church in Rome to likewise be careful of divisions there. Just like he was doing in Corinth. After giving a great amount of explanation about the wonder of our salvation in the first 11 chapters of Romans, in chapter 12, Paul starts to shift to show us how the practical outworking of our faith looks in everyday circumstances. It's not surprising to discover that much of what is included in there is very practical for our life today as well. Things such as how to work out conflicts, how to develop unity, how to love others when they let us down, how to rest in God's timing of reconciliation instead of exacting our own revenge, how to love when your enemy does not humble themselves and return the same love that you are giving. How to use your God-given talents and gifts to serve and care for others. How to interact with authorities even when they fail to be just and upright. This should be incredibly encouraging to us because this is our context. He's writing to believers with the same kind of problems that we ourselves face. God doesn't abandon us in moments like this, but directs us. He's not surprised by what he finds, and he walks out for us the wisdom of how to live in his kingdom. It's an amazing treasure chest of wisdom that describes not only their true reality, but ours as well with perceptive accuracy. And then in a fashion so common with Paul as he is turning into chapter 15, lest we get lost in a list of rules to be kept, he reminds us of what motivates all of this in this one another consideration. So let's read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, we who are strong... Have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We'll stop right there for a minute. We see here the context, the strong and the weak are both to look to Christ. Taken from the context of Paul's argument earlier in chapter 14, he's talking about those who are strong in the faith. He's been talking about food and uh, people who have different convictions about different things. Turn back to chapter 14, verse 1. Let me read through the first five verses to help you understand what he's talking about. As for the one who is weak in faith, he says, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's talking about issues of conscience and the application of the gospel to to the dietary restrictions that many people were accustomed to in that day. But this this principle of conscience applies to a variety of areas. He doesn't give an extensive list, and we can kind of import our own list today, things that people often struggle with in the body of Christ. Some Christians have varying convictions regarding the use of alcohol or what kind of entertainment they watch or the kind of music they listen to. Some Christians view debt as sin, others see debt as a wisdom issue, learning how to manage your finances and investing for the future. Some vote Democrat, others vote Republican or Independent. Some teach their kids about Santa Claus or participate in Halloween, others don't. Some are passionate about homeschooling. others about public school or charter school or Christian school. Some have their kids vaccinated while others have concerns about vaccinations. Some moms work outside the home, others stay home full time. And some families are committed only to eating organic food and eating clean, while others are handing out Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops to the glory of God. Convictions vary. Coming to Christ is a process. And we see in the scriptures grace being held out by Paul saying, you who are strong in the faith, bear with the failings of the weak. Nobody comes to Christ with everything understood and figured out. Our spiritual growth takes time and we all grow at different rates. We all come from different backgrounds with different vices, devices, excuse me, vices and previous commitments, even, that are sometimes hard to leave behind. We come out of a context, a worldview that once was godless, and we enter into a world that is now including God with the center of it. Change takes time. These things are so much a part of our makeup. they're habitual patterns of thought and action. But they are things upon which God desires to work and to transform. Because that's what the gospel does. But sometimes in the church, we experience conflict and friction, disappointment and judgment, because we make assumptions based upon our experience or our understanding. But Paul says, look to Christ. That's not the way of Christ. Paul gets right to the motive behind our own personal tension. Look look again at verse 1. At the end of it, he says, and not to please ourselves. We do what we do because it's most convenient for us. It's to our advantage. Whereas he says to please ourselves, this really is the core of our problem. It's the, the DNA, if you will, of sin. I like how 2 Corinthians 5, 15, Paul says that we, we, Christ died for us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. We have a tendency to turn things inward. Even in the faith, when something seems so obvious to you, Paul would remind us of the humility of Christ. It's not about your perspective of how life ought to be lived. It's about God's design of life and sharing in his glory of abundant joy as you concern yourself with meeting the needs of others first. Remember why you're in this. It's not for you, but for Christ and others. Look back at verse 3 again. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's an amazing statement if you mold that over for a while. You can spend the rest of this week thinking about how did he do that? Just what did Jesus do in in this statement? Christ who, although God in human flesh, as Tom read to us from before Hebrews chapter 1, he is the radiance of the Father. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet in Isaiah we see God saying that he was despised and rejected. He bore away our griefs. He was accounted of no esteem. And Paul is saying, remember Christ. Remember the strength of who Christ is and the condescension of what he did. I like this passage in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You who are strong, bear with those who are weak. Can you imagine Christ walking around his creation and seeing all that's broken? Now, if you've ever made something and left it somewhere... And somebody else got a hold of it and damaged it. How does that make you feel? You know, it's frustrating. You know, it's, it's broken. It's been tarnished. Like, who did that? And here's Christ, the creator of the universe, who, abstain, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, enters into human flesh and walks amongst us. Strength. Humbled. Patient. Enduring. That's why Paul looks to him. He's wanting us to remember how Christ did not exalt himself, though he is the only one truly worthy of being exalted. He humbled himself in serving others. He's the pattern for life when living in the context of enduring the weaknesses of others. He drew near to the broken and disenfranchised. As you read the Gospels, you just see incredible tenderness in Christ. He ate with them, he touched them, he defended them, he provided for them, he restored them. He was not embarrassed by them. He was not righteous in his approach over them, self-righteous, if you will, but merciful. Paul takes a brief pause after he has us tell us, tells us to look to Christ. It reminds us of the greater picture of God's redemptive work, beginning in verse 4. It's all about forbearance and restoration and reconciliation. Grace. Let's read verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, Obviously Paul is talking here about the Old Testament. We have the added joy of putting the New Testament into that statement today. But the Old Testament was enough for that, right? There's so much encouragement and hope. God's faithfulness has been displayed generation after generation after generation. Though the worlds rage against God and say, where is your God? And they doubt his goodness because of the brokenness of the world. God faithfully plods along the strong with the weak to draw them to himself. Because he's about a greater thing of redemption, restoration, reconciliation. I like how one author says that God defines what it means to be human in this book. All of what we are and what we suffer and why we suffer. It's explained here. I don't need the psychological manual of statistics to tell me why human beings do what they do or a sociological manual or a philosophical book. God, the creator, designer of the universe, has revealed himself to us. And says, "This is who you are. This is why you are. This is how you exist." The author goes on to say, "He knows what is wrong with us and diagnoses us in His Word and prescribes the solution, the gospel, to our problems." We are who God says we are. You know, everything we we purchase as a value, especially technology, comes with a, a manual, right? Because we want to know how to use it. We want to know how to maximize it. Well, how much more valuable? are the human beings who create those valuable objects. And here we have God, the creator-designer, who has given us a book of insight, a, a book of understanding, to understand how we function, why we function, what to do right when something goes wrong. God's word was written for our instruction so that through endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. Now, this is comprehensive hope. It says, whatever was written. That includes all of the testimony of God's working in the world. Whatever was written from former days, he says in verse 4. Let me point out that our need for counsel was not a result of the fall. It was a result of our design. In the beginning, when God made you and I, he gave instruction to Adam. Not because Adam wasn't with it, but because Adam needed God's assistant. We were created to be dependent upon God's counsel and instruction. And so Paul is saying, whatever was written was written for our instruction. This instruction is specific and practical, no matter how distant the text. It's interesting if you we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 10 later on. But in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul looks back with the with the folks in Corinth and he says, Don't forget the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. And then he says, these things were written for our instructions so that we would not be like them. We're to learn from these things, Paul says. Or think about the life of Job. A classic book on suffering and understanding. God, where are you in the midst of what we suffer? And I love how one pastor in, in Arizona that we, we heard a message on this, on the, the whole book of Job, it was so good. And he summed up the book of Job like this. He says, the ability to endure what we suffer does not come from knowing why we suffer, but rather from who we already know God to be. The ability to endure what we suffer does not come from knowing why we suffer, but rather from who we already know God to be. How do we know what God is like? It was written for our instruction. It's realistic for our context. What we find in Scripture corresponds to the world in which we live. It describes us. Especially as it refers to suffering. As he says, you know, through, so that through endurance, Paul, what are you talking about? Enduring what? Well, suffering, hardship, trial. Whether it's self inflicted or caused by another, we all experience the brokenness described here disappointment, failures, being hurt, being abandoned, being attacked, being forgotten. We're not Buddhists who try to wish away suffering or try to wish away ourselves' existence so that suffering no longer exists and thereby neither do we. We're people who look at the world in which God created and we look to God who created the world and manages the world and we say, God, how do I walk through this valley of darkness? How do I endure with hope? I love how practical God's word is. It meets us right where we are. No doubt, this last year has been challenging for all of us. We've had to live in tighter tighter, uh, homes. More people are around. We're not going to the office. Or if we do go to the office, we have different restrictions. We have have to go out in public. We can be frustrated by the limitations that we face. Then you have your own personal life struggles that you might face, relationships within your home that might be difficult to manage and navigate. I have my own context of challenges and it's hard. It's hard to respond in hope and it's hard to endure in faith. It's tempting to become self-righteously angry because you think you know you're right about this thing and the other person is dead wrong. And so you react. It's easy to become anxious and fearful or to worry about what may happen because after all, you have no control. You can't change the circumstance. You can't change other people's responses and We have a variety of these different kinds of emotions that we go through. And because we can't change and because we don't see the other person change, we're tempted to become bitter. And bitterness so quickly leads to lack of forgiveness. And then we begin to judge people's motives and we start looking, we go on the hunt for where people are failing us. But Paul would have us remember, wait a minute, we need to step back and keep our eyes on Christ. What does God call us to do In the midst of the sea that we find ourselves tossed to and fro with. Again, whether it's sin from within or sin from without. Or maybe it's just weaknesses and the failings of others. It's not sin. It's just people letting you down. How do we respond? I love how he goes on. He talks about not only does God, a God of endurance, but a God of encouragement. God gives us courage to press through. He emboldens us to keep doing the next right thing. And in this little book, this little letter of Romans, he's given incredible practical applications. Turn back with me, real quickly. In Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, one of my favorite passages that God has been convicting me of about how I should live in the context of undesirable strife and struggles. Verse 9, which should be enough for all of us. Let love be genuine, let it be real. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Be more consumed with how you can be a better servant, a better giver, a better lover to the person in front of you instead of what you're getting. Outdo one another, he says, in showing honor. Why should I do that? Well, because God has given me everything I need. I lack nothing. If I keep looking to God, I'll be able to love like God loves me. Verse 11, be fervent in spirit. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Or the second half of 16, never be wise in your own sight. And verse 17, repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If you're in the midst of a sea and a tumult of difficulty, go to this book. Go to this chapter in this section for God to just work you over. Remember who you are before the God who made you. Remember what God has done for you. Thereby that gives you a heart and a desire to walk after the pattern of the Savior. As you read chapter 12 verses 9 through 21, you begin to look at this list. Ultimately, these are all portrayed in the life of our leader, Christ. These are Christ-like qualities. Our faith is not a list. To be kept. We're not supposed to just check in and say, "Okay, did that? Did that? Did that?" But it's a life to be lived and a Lord to be loved. As Tom mentioned before, it's 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 a love and affection for Christ that is motivating me to do the things that I was created to do, things that the gospel liberates me to do. Turn back to Romans 15. This passage just continues to get better. He not only gives us his counsel, but we see that he gives himself to us, to put these things into practice. Starting at verse 5. Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This God of endurance, he says, may he grant to you, literally means may he cause you, may he put into you, may he produce in you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ. Christ became a man to reconcile God and man together, and then he dwells within us. He's within us by his Holy Spirit so that we might be able to, with one voice, glorify God. One author says this Paul calls your Lord the God of endurance. Your hope is not to be found in your willingness and ability to endure, but in God's unshakable enduring commitment to never turn from his work of grace. Your hope is that you have been welcomed into communion with the one who will endure no matter what, because God will always be faithful. You can bank on the fact that he will give you what you need to be faithful to. And why does he do this? So that we can welcome one another like Christ. That is the goal. It's interesting, at the end of this section, their context doesn't change. They still have strengths and weaknesses. They still have failures. They still have sin in the body of Christ that they have to navigate through. But what he's saying is your perspective, your perspective needs to shift. Who is Christ? What has he done for us? And where is he taking us? The answer to those questions is intended to be transformational. So that as people look at us, they see the glory of the gospel. Paul continues in chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, showing us how Christ came to serve all so that all may share in his glory. Let's read. You see that in history, history has ultimately one direction, the joy of all nations. Let's read this together, verse 8 through 12. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. Christ is depicted here as the servant king. Bringing hope to the nations. His arrival is the ultimate proof of God's faithful faithful, um, prophecy in scripture. His faithful proof of his care for his image bearers throughout the entire Old Testament. So how did Christ do this? Just real quickly, he did it as the sin bearer. He took our sins so that we might possess his righteousness. I like how Colossians 2 Paul says it this way 13 and 14. He says, "And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And you see 2 Corinthians 5:21 there as well. I I love that passage. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Christ also came as a servant and he, he came in humility. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, we need to wonder at these things. The exalted, glorious Christ became poor for you and for me. God was faithful. God has been faithful. For this next passage, Christ modeled for us how to live in submission and patience as, and trust in the Father, even though he suffered. Peter recounts the life of Christ and how he suffered in 1 Peter 2. But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he is reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued him trusting himself to him who judges justly. As a servant, Jesus was also about compassion and help. Not only was, but is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. The writer says, Since then we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace in the time of need. How can we not have joy in the gospel? How can we as people in the the world not be the most joyful people on the planet? Because of this. Because of God's faithfulness. Ultimately, it should yield not only a life of joy and peace, but hope, as is mentioned. And in this last section, as we close up, Paul calls God the God of hope. Romans 15, 13. He's the God of endurance, the God of encouragement, and the God of hope. He says, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The one who fulfilled every promise. No no wonder we have hope. No wonder we can have joy. Paul uses this phrase, the God of hope, is such a worthy title because that is his character This phrase is rich with a mind full of the Old Testament proofs that he spoke of earlier, that God is faithful, he is loving, he is wise, he is able, he is willing. He's the author of our story. And it's not over yet. And the ending is incredible. Do you believe that? That's what he's called us to. He says he fills us with all joy and peace. Not some to make it to the end. And by the way, don't spend all your joy because you only get so much, right? <laughs> He's not reticent to give. He gives all joy and all peace so we can be free from worry and anxiety. That's why Jesus says, worry does nothing for you, it cannot add a single minute to your life. How does He do this? How does He fill me with all joy and peace in believing? He says, He fills by means of our faith. He feels by means of our trust. Do you you believe in what what he's promised you? Do you believe what he's preserved for you in these words? And what are we believing? What are we trusting in? We're trusting in what God says it means to be human, to live, how to live, how to love, how to listen, how to serve, how to give, how to forgive, how to repent, how to repent, How to rejoice at the successes of others and grieve at their losses. But believing in the word also necessitates that we stop believing in things that aren't true. We stop looking at things where we once misplaced our hope and faith in lesser things. Competing narratives of who we are and how we should live. Neither social media nor Hollywood define the parameters of life. The source of our true joy, the nature of our sexuality, and especially not the form of our true faith. God has revealed himself and his purpose for the, for the creatures of those who bear his image. He shows us how to be human and redeems us to become just like him. He fills us by means, he says in chapter 15, verse 13, by means of the Holy Spirit. Not only at regeneration, but this continual feeling. As Pastor Dan reminded us last week, it's because of him that we are in Christ Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to shape in us. And he fills us in order to produce hope. He says, I want you to abound in hope. He gives us more than what is needed. It's an immovable hope. It's an unchanging hope. Why? Because, as Tom said again, our hope is not connected to a proposition, a theory, or an abstract theological idea. But it's attached to God himself. The God of endurance. It's tumultuous in our world. It always has been. It's easy for us to get lost at sea. But who's the captain of your ship? Who's the leader of your expedition? Paul would have us remember to look to Christ. I love how the writer of Hebrews literally calls Jesus the anchor of our soul, the forerunner. It is him that keeps us. That's why Paul said earlier in Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Why? Because God is a God of endurance, encouragement, and hope. Let's pray.